This is Tuned Into the Land, the California Rangeland Trust podcast. Here, we will dig into a variety of topics with the partners, conservationists, and ranchers who demonstrate every day, through their words and actions, the importance of conserving California's working lands. Tune in each month to learn more about our mission and how you can get involved in preserving the future of the Golden State for generations to come. Hello and welcome to another episode of Tune In to the Land. I am Michael Delbar, California Rangeland Trust CEO. This month is Wildfire Awareness Month, and here at the Rangeland Trust, we take wildfire awareness and prevention very seriously. Over the last few years, we have seen too many devastating wildfires wipe out our towns, homes, communities, and acres and acres of rangeland. To talk with me about this topic, I want to introduce Dan Macon. Dan currently serves as a University of California Cooperative Extension Livestock and Natural Resources Advisor for Placer, Nevada, Sutter, and Yuba Counties. He also served as the California Rangeland Trust Executive Director for many years. With that, let me welcome Dan to the podcast. Michael, thank you for having me. Dan, I know I just gave a small introduction of what you do, so why don't you go into a little more in-depth about yourself? Well, you know, you can't see this on the podcast, but I'm a bald guy, and bald guys wear lots of different hats. Um, I've been the farm advisor here, the livestock advisor here in the the northern foothills um, for just about five years now. But my family and I also are partners in Flying Mule Sheep Company, which is based here in Auburn, um, where we're recording this today. And we've been doing that, uh, I guess we've raised sheep for over 20 years all, all together. Might, might actually figure out what we're doing one of these days. Um, and I'm intrigued by your podcast because we have a little podcast as well called Sheep Stuff You Should Know. So one of the, the things that I think this is an issue all over the, the state, but here in the foothills, it, it seems like in particular, and, and I think over in the coast range too, is just the, the growing threat of wildfire. It seems like, you know, when I was a kid and probably when you were two, um, a big fire was five or 6,000 acres. Yeah. And it seems like that goes up in part of an afternoon mm-hmm. now. It's just outrageous how, how much of the state seems to be burning. Um, in 1996, we had in Lake County the, the Forks Fire, and that we thought was huge at 36,000 acres. Yeah. Like you said, that's dwarfed now when yeah. you look at the, the millions of acres. In 2020, according to CAL FIRE's website, over 4 million acres across the state of California burned. That made it one of the most devastating wildfire seasons in history. I mean, even in 21, we didn't get any relief. We had 2 million acres burning then. And each year, these wildfire seasons seem to start earlier and burn longer. Yeah, you know, similar similar example where I grew up in the in the Stanislaus National Forest in Tuolumne County. Um, Eighty six, we had a fire that went a hundred thousand acres, but it probably burned two months. And the Dixie Fire went a hundred thousand acres in a single afternoon. Yeah, several times this year it's just it's incredible kind of the the fuel loading and and just the conditions that we're faced with um out there and it's it's not you know it, it has devastated communities and you think of the campfire or the dixie fire mm-hmm. or those north coast fires over the last several years um but it's disrupting wildlife disrupting the ecosystem it's just it's it's devastating so what is left after a fire of that magnitude and that hot 
you know, it's and you've had direct experience with this too. It's it's interesting um, having been through some of those burn areas, kind of the mosaic of intensity that you see out there on the landscape. Um, some of those areas probably needed to burn and, and will be better for having burned mm-hmm. if it was low intensity. But there's so much fuel load in these systems anymore that the low intensity fire is really, really rare. Um, we're actually burning at much higher intensities for longer time periods. And so we see um, soil that's that's been sterilized. We see utter devastation of, of the timber can timber um, resources and oaks and, and other things mm-hmm. that are part of the habitats that that livestock producers all work in and, and try to manage. And I, I was telling somebody this several weeks ago. It seems like every place that I loved as a kid growing up has burned in the last ten years. And it's not going to be the same in my lifetime and, mm-hmm. and maybe not the same in my kids' lifetime because of the intensity of those fires. And we look at the brush and the fuels that we like to control burn. And just getting permits for that has been a challenge. And we get air pollution control offices that say, oh, no, it's not a good day to burn. There may be some smoke in the air. Well, what smoke is in the air after you have a million acres burning? Well, you can't see for weeks on end, can't breathe. And that has an impact not only on the people, but the livestock as well. They are severely impacted by that smoke inhalation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, you know, I think it's, it's, um, it's an interesting dynamic in that those of us who care for livestock have to be out in that too. The, the, the care, the need to care for livestock doesn't go away because the air is bad. And um, I think that has impacts um, as well. We've done some research here at, at Cooperative Extension to look and see if, if there's any um, impact from the heavy metals that may be in the, in the smoke from residential fires on kind of forage quality and safety. Mm-hmm. And at this point, we don't think there's an impact, but but we're right at the beginning of, of kind of these year after year after year um, fires that, that I think are going to cause some long-term impacts in that regard, too. That's interesting. Never thought of that. Yeah, there's there's so much to it when we burn whole communities like that. You know, it's more than just the, just the brush or just the trees. But even the trees, you know, we had a firewall run through um, one of our places in 2018. Mm-hmm. And we lost 95% of the conifers. Wow. And, uh, but the oak devastation, and you think of oaks being a pretty hardy tree, and a lot of them did survive. Yeah. But so many of them didn't. And even today, you know, three years later, four years later, we're starting to see those same trees are still falling. Yeah. They're just given up. And it's all that habitat. It's devastating. Yeah. It's hard to see. It really is. It really is. And, and, you know, I think, I think the wildlands, um, what we call wildlands, that these fires um, are also devastating, are also working landscapes in many cases, and um, and the kind of the relationship of of livestock production to the quality of wildlife habitat that we see in those landscapes is severely disrupted when the whole thing burns up. I mean, not only do we lose forage for livestock, but we lose forage for the wildlife and we lose um, rearing habitat for for wildlife. We lose Mm -hmm. bird habitat. All those things that kind of go hand in hand 
um, are really disrupted and, and devastated. It takes them a long time to come back. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So how can we help the situation in terms of fuel reduction? What type of, of grazing regimes are possible, particularly around some of the more rural urban areas that aren't these wider grazing landscapes? You know, I, there's, a, I think, a lot of opportunity for expanding what we have, have started to call targeted grazing um, for fuel load reduction. And, you know, if you think about the tools that are available to us to reduce fuel loads and to, to help prevent wildfire, there's really only two that remove fuel. Um, one of those is prescribed fire, um, but the other one's grazing. And grazing, by definition, removes fine fuels and turns it into fiber or meat or milk or other products. And uh, we're starting to see here in the foothills and I think other parts of the state kind of a renewed acknowledgement that grazing is an important part of our annual fire management system. Um, and especially in the context of, of um, kind of urban, suburban or, or urban um, neighborhoods that have an interface with those wildlands, grazing can be a really effective tool, um, particularly with sheep and goats, mm -hmm. where we can get them into smaller parcels and into places maybe it'd be difficult to get cattle um, and treat those fuels that need to be treated on an annual basis. I'm always amazed, um, you know, as a rancher, I know that the grass is going to come back every year, but I'm always amazed when when folks move out into these areas and say, well, well, their fuel loads here every year. Yeah, that's yeah. part of the process, <laughs> right? And that's why we need to graze those yeah. places because it's really the, the best tool available to us to remove those fuels. Some of those larger landscapes tend to be some of our state and federal lands, particularly our state lands. Yeah. A lot of parks, a lot of uh, refuges. How does grazing play a role in responsible management of those lands? You know, I think that's an evolving conversation, at least here in, in the foothills where I am, but, but I think all over the state. Um, there had been an assumption, um, much like our, kind of our assumption about fire being bad in all cases, there was an assumption, um, particularly on state lands, that grazing was not an appropriate use of those lands. And I think we're coming back around to the place now where we've realized we've, we've got to manage the vegetation on mm -hmm. those lands on an annual basis, that it does come back every year. Great example here in the in the foothills um, is our Auburn State Recreation Area, um, which is on either side of the American River, kind of between Auburn here and Placerville. Um, hasn't been grazed for probably 30 years. And state parks and the Bureau of Reclamation now are realizing um, that the communities of Auburn and Cool and Pilot Hill and Placerville are all at severe risk of, of wildfire because there hasn't been fuel management mm -hmm. in that area. Um, and they're starting to look actually at, at bringing cattle back into some of those landscapes um, in strategic areas um, where we can manage the fuel and protect those communities and protect the resources around those communities. Well, not just the grass, but if a regular grazing routine also helps keep back that invasive brush and invasive weeds. Uh, if land is not grazed, that brush is going to continue to encroach and become a bigger, bigger problem. And that's huge fuel load. 
Absolutely. And, and I think it's, you know, I think most ranchers understand this, but the decision not to manage a piece of ground is still a decision. Mm-hmm. It still, still has an impact. And I think um, we're starting to realize that the tools that we have available on these large-scale landscapes um, are largely four-legged and four-stomached, that we need these ruminant animals out there on the landscape to, to manage those resources effectively and, and, as you said, to manage the brush as well as the, the fine fuels. But we still have folks that don't understand how important that is and folks that are in the policymaking realm that continue to push back on efforts to increase grazing as a management tool. And it's disappointing. You would, one would think that given the last several years, number of years in California with all these fires and that smoke and all the issues we talked about, that one would go, okay, there's got to be a better way. But when you mention grazing on state lands, there's still that continual pushback from some of the same players in in the environmental community, in the policymaking community that just can't seem to understand that if we manage those lands, like you said, no management is a management decision, not usually the best one, but it is a decision. So we need to make the better decisions in terms of how we're going to reduce those fuel loads. Yeah, and I think I think there's there all has always been kind of a disconnect between um, what that issue looks like sitting on the twelfth floor of a building in Sacramento or or somewhere like that, versus um, looking out the window here and and seeing a fuel load that does threaten homes and communities. I think um, there's absolutely a role for. Um, Cooperative Extension and for some of our other state state educational institutions to really demonstrate um, the effectiveness of this tool, um, but also to empower communities to use a tool maybe when when state or federal governments um, can't quite get there. And I think one of the encouraging things that's happened um, just in the last couple of years is that the Forest Service um, in our part of the world has realized that that there's an awful lot of ground outside of its grazing allotment system that needs management. And they're starting to to develop the tools to contract with targeted grazing companies to, to manage some of those fuels, which we need more of that happening. That's good news. And there's great examples of success out there, uh, East Bay mm-hmm. areas and some of the parks that do an, a great job of, of balancing the the cattle grazing and the management of those lands. And so there's good examples that we can all rely on that others can rely on. It's just getting the right changing that attitude. Yeah, getting past that inertia. Yeah. So one of the things that that we do with our sheep um kind of along those lines. We work with a homeowners association here in Auburn um, that's large lot development. So these are are homes that are on 20 to 40 acre lots, Um, maybe two or three acres of landscaping and the rest is is foothill, oak woodland, rangeland. And um, we've started working with that community to bring sheep back in the early summer um, before fire danger is is, out of hand and really taking that fuel down. Um, we don't have enough mouths in our own operation, nor do we have enough sheep and goats in the foothills to treat every acre that needs to be treated. So we've really worked with the community to be strategic, you know, to, to treat areas where ignitions might happen, to, 
to kind of protect their capital assets in, in that community. Um, but it's been it's been an effective um, opportunity for us economically. Um, we get paid to do it, um, but it's also treated a part of the landscape that couldn't be treated otherwise. Mm-hmm. The sheep will get into some pretty steep country that um, be tough to tough to get equipment into or or even pay somebody with a string trimmer to get that much ground treated. So. Yeah, hard to do prescribed burns that close to residences. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think that's the other. Piece. You know, there's some great opportunities for prescribed burns in areas where we're trying to control brush. And, I, you know, probably your, your father's generation, just like my father's generation in the foothills, um, there was a kind of a culture of using fire for range improvement. Yeah. And we've lost some of that. But you start thinking about these slopes that are, are three foot high grass, um, you're probably not going to do prescribed fire on those in June or July. No. Next to a, a $2 million home. But the sheep do a really good job in those kinds of situations. And I think there's examples of cattle um, being able to kind of serve that same role in other parts of the state. So we have a challenge ahead of us to change the mindset of our policymakers. How has the mindset of HOA members in, in these communities changed or, and has it? It has. It has. I think, um, you know, I think the last drought was kind of a wake up call for folks that were kind of new to this environment. Um, we, where we graze our sheep in the wintertime, um, in the last big drought, we actually had a 20 acre grass fire in February, which um, raised some eyebrows and, and got some folks concerned. I think the one of the, the areas where attitudes have changed is that um, it's not just free feed for the sheep guy anymore. It's a service. And I think um, in our case, the, the homeowners association really has started to view having our sheep out there as a service to them rather than as a benefit to us as the sheep producers. We graze out there in the wintertime, um, which is, is great for us to be able to rest some of our summer irrigated pasture. But now the homeowners want sheep back out there once fire danger picks up and, and able to treat some of those real key areas. And I think that shift has been has been uh, really positive. I think the other interesting shift, um, and I'm sure you see this over where you are as well, as these communities have become less agricultural in nature, the uniqueness of seeing sheep or goats or cows out on the landscape is is another attraction. Um, This year during lambing, at the request of the HOA, we had an open house where people got to come see the lambs and and meet the sheep and meet the dogs. There's some entertainment value that's probably not there when you hire the guy with the string trimmer or the the masticator. It's it's got kind of this cultural aspect to it that I think is really unique and and fun. It is, and and there's a lot of work that goes into moving in and moving out of an area like that, yep. water fencing. Yep. It's not a real easy task for you as the, as the grazer to move your, your flock into something like that. So recognizing that, yeah, maybe uh, some grass that's now feed for your for your livestock, but the infrastructure needed for that is, is not insignificant. No, I think that's a really good point. And I think... Um, you know, we have we have designed our business model so that that the targeted grazing is kind of a byproduct to the fact that we have sheep that are producing lambs and wool. 
But in many cases, the the reproduction of the livestock is kind of a byproduct of having these four-legged fuel reduction tools out there on the landscape. And there's a cost to that too. You know, there's a cost of, of um, in terms of the reproductive success, um, if you're really pushing the animals to reduce mm-hmm. what it, it may not be a real high quality forage resource, um, there is all that added labor and, and liability. You know, if my sheep get loose um, into the landscaping in a $2 million um, valued home, um, it's a little different than if they got loose in my backyard and, and ate a few garden plants. You know, there, there's an expectation of immediate response and repair of that landscaping um, if we're eating somebody's marigolds. So, yeah. think what it is when a when a steer gets in there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, those are always fun calls. Yes, but you're right on the on the cultural side. We also run on public lands, and we're moving cattle down the road it's really fun to watch folks just stop and not that they can't get through but they just want to stop and watch they want to watch the dogs work they want to watch the horses work and to them it's really an exciting experience so i can imagine if you're a homeowner having sheep in your in your backyard so to speak is is, could be pretty cool experience we just had that experience um we we grazed a little project on our way home to get the sheep shorn a couple of weeks ago and it was close enough that we could walk from the job to our home place which if you've ever walked um use with relatively new lambs um it's much like herding cats but we had people stopped on the road videotaping us we had a um a lady that we knew who happened to be going for a walk with her little boy that just followed us all the way back yeah. to our place <laughs> so they could watch the whole process and it's it it's something that we probably take for granted because we grew up around it. Yeah. But people don't get to see that kind of real world work with livestock very often. It's pretty amazing. And they, they really love the dogs. Yes. Yes. And if I were a better horseman, we'd do it horseback. But then it'd be a total wreck on my end. <laughs> so you had mentioned um, your kind of direct experience in 2018, I think, fire that came through the ranch. How much time did you have to know that the fire was coming. That's that's my worry here in the foothills is that I'm gonna get a call that, that your fence is already on fire. Not a lot. Uh, it started on a ranch not far from us and it started around noon on a Friday and I was in Sacramento and uh, got a call from home, said, what time are you leaving? I usually leave around three or so. Uh, no, you need to leave now, get home. We need you, come up on the, come up on Lamb Ranch. So hightailed at home, got up there, and went to the house up there. And, and my brother-in-law, who's a retired Cal Fire captain, said, it's going to hit us at 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. I'm like, you sure? He said, yep, 2 o'clock Saturday afternoon. 1.45, it hit the property line. Wow. And fortunately, we had time to do some clearing around the house. Clearing that should have been done long before, but it was a great family building experience <laughs> to get everybody up there and say, all right, let's get moving. And so yeah. we had two cats and got some work done and and prepared and we saved the house. Uh, we lost everything else, all the timber, all the grasslands. And as we talked about the brush that we've been wanting to burn for years, but challenging getting the, yeah. the burn permits. When you do get a burn permit, this stuff doesn't want to burn. The yeah. only thing you burn is the diesel you threw on it and nothing else. So the grasses that came back the next year were amazing. 
brushland that that really got burned back and some new grasslands developed but uh, unfortunately the the timber and a lot of the oaks yeah and in the habitat we had as we sat there for probably a week or so there was there really were no sounds you didn't hear birds you didn't hear anything it was just dead everything was dead black and uh, the land was dead Uh, we were we were hurt you know just it's something you know my father-in-law said you know the 80 years he's been up there he's never seen a fire and and it just made up for it yeah and it's a it's pretty hard yeah but you know we were replanting the the conifers and the i said the grasses have come back and we had water resources that we didn't have before because a lot of that brushland wasn't soaking up that water yeah so springs were starting to flow again that hadn't flown in for a long time creeks were running longer into the year uh it was a from a livestock production side it was it was great but it's just that's a hard way to do it yeah 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 that's you know knock on wood we have not experienced that here in placer county um but but we will i mean it's coming and um i think the the it's like planting a tree right the best time to start doing this work with livestock is today the second best time is as soon as you can get to it Mm -hmm. and i think um i think there's a a huge opportunity for new people young people in particular um, for whom it's really hard to get started in livestock if you don't own the land and, and you've got all this capital outlay this is a great way to start a livestock business for a lot of folks and i think there's some good opportunities in particular for kind of that next generation that maybe there's not um, room for another two or three full livings on a ranch to come home and kind of take these types of enterprises and expand what the ranch is doing within the community. I think there's some huge opportunities there. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, we've had those discussions at, at, in our family as well. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, that my youngest is coming home from Idaho next week, two weeks, um, that I can convince her to set build fence and feed guard dogs for me this summer. <laughs> <laughs> Hands-on experience, right? No. <laughs> No, the uh, we have to we being everybody here in California. I hope are starting to realize how important grazing is as yeah. a management tool. That no management is exactly that; it's no management, yeah. and that's not the best option. We can't just lock something up and not touch it because we see what happens, and it's the, the devastation is just too great to do that. So, during this Wildfire Awareness Month. It's a good time to hit those messages again and let folks know that their tools are out there. They're great tools. They're great to convert these wildfire fuels loads into a great protein or a nice uh, fiber. And we can do that economically and efficiently, much more so than a a weed whacker or a a masculine, like you said. I think the other piece of this, and this to me gets to kind of the importance that that California Rangeland Trust plays in all of this is that having boots on the ground every day in these landscapes is so vitally important too. having a reason to be out there in that landscape day in and day out to see um, kind of the, the seasonal changes, but the year to year changes and what those landscapes look like. 
happens because there are ranching families that have a reason to be out there on a daily basis. And I think um, conserving that landscape, but also maintaining those opportunities for family-based businesses to be on the land is, is a really important part of this fire prevention um, approach. And I think that's, you know, we, we've got to not only maintain those communities, but maintain those ranching opportunities. I think that's really important. So as the California Rangeland Trust's first executive director, you were literally <laughs> there on day one. What did you think Rangeland Trust would be in 10 or 20 years? Hmm. That's a great question. That's a great question. <clears throat> you know, I think um, looking back on those early days, and gosh, that's been over 20 years ago now. 25 um, next year? I, I was going to say I had hair then, but I didn't really. Um, you know, there was a lot of, um, I would say, mixed feelings within the ranching community about kind of this perpetual option for conserving private ranches. And I think some of the early adopters helped alleviate those concerns to a large degree. I had hoped that it would be um, a tool for not only not only conserving these important habitats and and natural resources, but for maintaining that human connection with those habitats and, and the relationship between grazing and all of the other benefits that we've talked about this morning. And I think, you know, looking at where you are today, um, it's an ongoing job, but you've made huge, huge strides in, in doing that. I think the fact that it's become so mainstream within the ranching community now to talk about long-term conservation um, and about kind of this multi-generational commitment um, to a community and to the land. Using the tools that the Rangeland Trust can, can help provide is just tremendous progress. I think it's really exciting. Well, thank you. And 365,000 acres later and another 200,000 acres on our list of, of families ranches that want to permanently protect those lands that we're working hard to to make a reality for them it's a it's an exciting job it's an exciting organization and a huge thanks to folks like you that were there at the beginning and continue to do the work you do uh, on the grazing side throughout the uh, the state of california it's an exciting time to be part of part of the grazing community lots of opportunity so, Dan, thank you for your time and being a part of this podcast. We really appreciate that. It, we hope that folks learned a lot about prescribed grazing and the importance of, of wild fuel management in our lands. Michael, thank you for, for putting this topic together and, and for all that the Rangeland Trust is doing. Great to see you. Likewise, sir. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tune Into the Land. Once again, thank you, Dan Macon, for taking your time today. There's a lot happening on the policy front, so next month we will give you an update on policy issues with one of our partners from the Partnership of Rangeland Trusts. Be sure to hit that follow button so you'll know when we release the next episode. Once again, thank you for joining us.